Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 202, The Fall of Epowich. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, the members are listening to an episode about how the class structure of the Northmen was arranged, and how that structure has ties to not one, not two, but three separate menage a trois between the god Heimdall and some local Scandinavian couples. Now, if that's piqued your interest, you can get instant access to that episode and all the previous members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Shay, Chris, and Deborah for signing up already. When we left off last time, King Edmund of East Anglia had paid a Danegeld to the great heathen army. But rather than leaving, the army set up camp in his kingdom. It was a situation that would have caused all manner of havoc for virtually everyone who lived in the small eastern kingdom. The suffering would have been widespread. And in an era where religion provided the lens through which to view current events in history, the pagan domination of a good Christian king, the famine that almost certainly followed, and the way that the heathens would have been able to operate with impunity within Christendom, it must have seemed like Judgment Day, or at least a sign of the end times. Interpreting a political or military matter as the arrival of biblical prophecy, or at the very least a temporal chastisement for a spiritual failure, might seem strange to us. If I was out getting coffee and I saw an army on the horizon, my first conclusion probably wouldn't be, oh man, I must have really pissed off God. But I would suspect that viewing their world as one of spiritual cause and effect would at least make the chaos of the era appear to have some sort of order to it. By looking at it as part of divine retribution, or at least as a divine warning, you can give the suffering some context. And it even gives you something you can do to stop it. If God was mad at you for looking at Wolfreda with lust in your heart, make amends and maybe he'll change his mind and the pagans will go away. Frankly, this reasoning is probably why we hear similar explanations from the more eccentric wings of modern religions whenever there's a major natural disaster. It's just far more comforting a perspective than acknowledging that life is chaotic and you're suffering because of the long-term impacts of decisions made by complete strangers far away and that there's nothing you could have done to prevent it and very little that you can do now to make it stop. And I get it, right? That's scary. Imagine how you would feel if you suddenly found yourself in a car careening down a mountain with no brakes, and then you discover that there's no steering wheel either. So, even if it makes God seem a little oversensitive and passive-aggressive, assuming that this was all your fault for not being spiritually pure enough could have given people the sense that they at least had some sort of control. And this becomes important on a whole other level. Remember when we spoke before about how the Anglo-Saxons were adopting Carolingian attitudes towards nobility and rule? Well, in Carolingian thought, it was pretty well accepted that one of the king's primary duties was to maintain the spiritual health of his kingdom. That means if King Edmund was a devout individual, he likely assumed a certain amount of personal guilt for what was happening. Even if he was pious and doing all the things in his daily life that he was supposed to do, 
someone in his kingdom was upsetting God. And ultimately, it was his fault for not properly leading that person back towards the flock. So, chances are, East Anglia was dealing with a fair amount of guilt from top to bottom. And I'm willing to bet that the Carolingians got a free pass on the blame. Which is a shame, since a lot of this is actually their fault. But no matter who held the blame, the Danes were in East Anglia. And the chroniclers and various scribes have given us several potential leaders of this army. Some say that it was Halfdan, who was one of the sons of Ragnar Lothbrok. Though Abbo tells us that it was led by other sons of Ragnar Lothbrok, namely Ubba and Ivor the Boneless, who were, quote, united through the devil, end quote. Which gives me the impression that Abbo really didn't like Ubba and Ivor. Unfortunately, we don't have a clear indication of who exactly was leading the army, nor are we given an indication of what was going on with Guthrum, and that's surprising because he goes on to play a huge role in this story later on. However, I suspect our sources were doing the best they could, and given the chaotic nature of Viking or war bands, there could have been, and probably were, a variety of kings and leaders and the selection of the overlord very well could have been a fluid and highly political matter. Leadership could have changed quickly, and often. But whoever was in charge at that point, their army was creating no end of problems for East Anglia. But King Edmund was probably counting his lucky stars that he was even able to buy them off with a Danegeld, because had the Danes come looking for war, there would have been little that King Edmund and the warbands of East Anglia could have done to stop such a large force. And it was a force that was continuing to grow as the year went on. All throughout the winter, additional ships had been bringing men to support the great heathen army. When spring came, the sowing season, a period when the people would need every seed they could get their hands on, still more longships arrived in East Anglia. When summer finally came, the local people would be entering the lean season. As we've spoken about before, many people assume that winter would be the lean season, since the foliage typically goes dormant during that period of the year. But winter comes right on the heels of autumn, which is the primary harvesting season. Their larders would have been well stocked in the cold months. Winter was a time for feasting. Summer, on the other hand... That was a time for hard work in the fields, and a time where you'd be relying heavily upon your stores of food as you await the harvest season. Only this time, the East Anglian stores had been ravaged by the great heathen army, and whatever they had left probably had to be sowed in the fields for the next harvest. The summer of 866 would have been a dangerous time for the East Anglians, and they would have found themselves heavily reliant on gathering and scavenging in the surrounding wildlands. But even here, they would have been in competition for food with the Northmen, because they also would have likely been foraging off the land for themselves. And in that summer, even more pirates arrived. Across the Channel in Francia, Charles had paid 4,000 pounds of silver to one of the Vikinger armies on the condition that they seek other hunting grounds. In the past, they might have taken the money and continued their raids. But Francia had become problematic. The Franks were having more success in battle, and the Northmen had caught a series of plagues from their campaigns, 
and those plagues had weakened and winnowed their numbers. Word had also likely spread of the crews across the channel who were making out like bandits in East Anglia. So why not take the money handed to them by Charles and make their way west to join in on the fun? The summer of 866 was a time of enormous migration out of Francia and into East Anglia. And it was happening at exactly the time when the East Anglians couldn't afford any additional strain on their resources. And these ships brought battle-hardened warbands who were well acquainted with warfare and very likely comfortable seizing any resources that they felt they needed. And as a bonus, they hadn't been present when the Danegeld was struck with King Edmund. So who knows whether or not these new fleets would have felt bound by it. Now this was a region that had long experience with hardship. Even before they became known as the East Angles, even going as far back as when they were known as the Iceni, Boudicca's people, they were well acquainted with the suffering that comes from war and occupation. But even taking that into account, and looking through all their history, the 860s were still one of the worst times in history to be East Anglian. But for whatever reason, the great heathen army didn't seize the kingdom outright. Instead, it looks like they were intending to hold true to their word and look to other kingdoms in their search for plunder. Remember, Vikinger culture was nothing if not pragmatic. Even though they had a large force, and even though Valhalla awaited the brave and glorious, there was no sense in throwing your life away on a fool's errand. If there were softer targets to be had, they should be taken first. Luckily, that year abroad in East Anglia had given the Great Heathen Army a chance to assess their next step, and it was probably during that period that they caught wind of what was going on in Northumbria. Politics in Northumbria in the 860s were ugly. Frankly, they've been pretty ugly off and on for well over a century. But this current Northumbrian fracas couldn't have come at a worse time. Let me give you a brief reminder of what's going on there so you can see all of this in context. For most of the 9th century, Northumbria had been ruled by King Ainred. And it seems that King Ainred was a good king. Or at least, he was good at staying in power because he'd ruled for several decades without being assassinated, expelled, deposed, or any of the other things that typically plagued the Northumbrian throne. But death comes for us all, and eventually King Ainred died, and his son, Athelred, took the throne. And he became King Athelred II. And he wasn't the same Athelred as the one who's currently ruling over Wessex, by the way. That's a completely different Athelred. Think of the name Athelred like the Middle Ages version of Chris. Anyway, the new King Athelred II of Northumbria wasn't all that popular, and after a short reign, he was turfed out of power, and Raidwolf was placed on the throne. You might be wondering who Raidwolf was, and I can tell you that we have no idea. We know that there were at least five families that had been fighting and killing for the throne of Northumbria, so he could have been a member of any one of them. Or maybe he was from a completely different group. We simply don't know. What we do know is that according to Roger of Wendover, he fought against the Northmen and died in battle. And we think that happened sometime in the 850s. Following the death of their leader, it seems that the Northumbrian nobility kind of awkwardly invited Athelred to return to the throne. Which must have been awful. 
I mean, the baby I made a huge mistake talk is bad enough when you're just dealing with a breakup. But breakups don't typically involve all your friends and end in exile. How do you even begin to walk that back? So, after some shuffling feet, an embarrassed apology, a promise to never do it again, and probably some really complicated makeup sex, King Athelred II was back on the throne of Northumbria. However, the problem with getting back together is that the same old problems are usually still there. And it wasn't long before people started to get discontent with King Athelred II once again. Only this time, it seems that they weren't willing to exile him. They were going to make sure that he was out of their lives for good. So, King Athelred II was assassinated by someone. We don't know who. <laughs> we actually don't even know why. But, clearly, someone wanted him gone. And a new noble by the name of Osbert was placed on the throne. And you might be asking, who was Osbert related to? And my response is, that's a very good question. Unfortunately, like King Raidwolf, we're not sure. Hell, for all we know, he might have been the guy who killed King Athelred II. This is a black hole for our history. In fact, we don't even know when King Osbert began his rule. But, whoever he was and whenever he started to rule, it seems that it didn't take long before he stepped on some rather important toes. According to Simeon, King Osbert started seizing property from some religious institutions. Now, even though Simeon was writing later on, I do find this completely plausible, since King Osbert was probably worried about a possible insurgency, and he might have wanted to shore up his position by acquiring wealth. Don't forget that we've seen the West Saxon nobility doing the exact same thing with a great deal of success. However, Northumbria wasn't Wessex. For example, Wessex didn't have five or more noble families just dying for a reason to stab someone. So all the West Saxons had to worry about was Kent, Canterbury, and Vikings. But Northumbria? That was a whole different situation. For the last century or so, we seem to have had several Northumbrian families who were watching and waiting for any opportunity to exploit a misstep by the king. After all, what better way to seize power for your dynasty than to raise hell over something that the current monarch just did? So predictably, once King Osbert seized some church property, the nobles burst into action, and amid the uproar, Osbert was ousted from power. And a man named Alla was placed on the throne. And who was Alla? Don't know. We don't have any genealogical records for Osbert or Alla. So it's hard to say. Kirby says they're brothers, but I haven't been able to find a solid primary source supporting that contention, so I'm pretty skeptical. Now you might be tempted to assume that he was a member of one of the bloodthirsty Northumbrian families, and you would have good reason to make that assumption. However, I wouldn't be so quick to jump to that conclusion just yet, because the record tells us that Alla had seized the throne despite having, quote, no hereditary right, end quote. Which gives the impression that he might have been an outsider, perhaps a member of a new and up-and-coming dynasty. Whatever the case, by the mid-860s, King Osbert had been deposed, 
and King Alla of Northumbria was now on the throne. But just because they got rid of Osbert doesn't mean that things were peaceful in Northumbria. Nor does it mean that everyone was happy with their new king. In fact, we're told that the Archbishop of York, Wolf Hera, had fled the region. And given the lack of Alla's hereditary right, you can imagine that there were quite a few nobles with ruffled feathers. And predictably, in the end, a lot of the Northumbrians liked King Alla even less than they liked King Osbert. Northumbria was a land where the grass was always greener on the other side. In fact, some accounts even describe Alla as a tyrant, and a variety of nobles gathered to Osbert's banner and sought to restore him to the throne, thus triggering another civil war in classic Northumbrian style. And that's the circumstance that the armies of Ivor, Halfdan, Ubba, and whoever else was likely told about when they gathered their strength in East Anglia. Two warring kings, bloodied warbands, and a kingdom in chaos? It was perfect. Even though Mercia and Wessex were closer, the opportunity presented by such a fractured kingdom could not be denied. The Northumbrians might as well have rolled out a welcome mat. The only downside appears to have been its location. Reaching Northumbria from East Anglia by land would be one hell of a problem because the Fens provided a significant obstacle and could slow them down to such an extent that all of Britain would know of their movements by the time they arrived. But they were Northmen. They weren't constrained by the land. They could and would sail wherever they wanted. But there was a significant complication with going by boat. Namely, what do you do about the horses? After all, they made a big deal out of including the horses in the East Anglian Danegeld. So what were they planning on doing about them? Well, we don't have a detailed description of what happened there. I'm sure they brought them along. They would be really valuable, so why wouldn't you? But it's not clear how they did it. It would have been over 60 nautical miles to go from the north of East Anglia to the southern tip of Northumbria. And Bessie might love the water, but she's not swimming that far. I suppose that horses could be loaded onto their longships in a pinch, but that could be dangerous. Maybe they put them on rafts and drag them behind the fleet. These people were gifted sailors and shipwrights. I'm sure they could have constructed the necessary equipment if they wanted to go that route. But the real trick would have been finding a way to keep the horses steady on the voyage. Could you imagine the level of damage a panicked horse could have caused? Horses are no joke. They will trample people simply because they're surprised by a bubblegum wrapper in their stable. So they must have had some sort of method. At the very least, they probably had to blinder the horses for the voyage, right? I mean, you really don't want them freaking out on open water. But blinders might have done it. And this wasn't an impossible feat. And more importantly, it had to be done. Going by land and then trying to cross the fens and then making the long march through Mercia just wasn't going to be feasible. Not for what they had planned. They had their sights set upon a prize that would be worthy of such an enormous army. A sizable city that was protected by a combination of old Roman walls and Anglo-Saxon fortifications. If the Danes could take that city, it would be an incredibly useful staging ground for the great heathen army and it would provide a great deal of safety and security as they waited out the winter of 866. 
So the old Roman settlement of Ibarakum, or as the Anglo-Saxons now called it, Ephawich, was the target. Taking it wouldn't be easy. Those fortifications were significant. However, they had a plan. Northumbria was racked by civil war and exhausted from conflict. And for most of 866, the great heathen army had waited in East Anglia. They just let them fight it out. In fact, they didn't make any moves throughout the entirety of the campaigning season. They just held fast. And then, at long last, the autumn of 866 came. As was customary in Europe, the fighting came to an end, and the Northumbrians harvested their crops and prepared to hunker down as the season turned dark and cold. This was not a time for war. It was a time for religious observances. The holy days would be coming fast and furious, and any devout Christian would want to pay observance to God and his saints rather than fighting on a rain-soaked battlefield. But Ivor and his men weren't Christian. They would, however, be more than willing to exploit Christian customs whenever they could. And the Christian celebration of All Hallows was just around the corner. The Christians wouldn't expect a late autumn attack, and they certainly wouldn't expect an attack on one of their own holy days. Provided that the Danes could move quickly and avoid being seen, they might be able to take the city completely by surprise. We've seen this same tack being used by Ragnar himself when he took advantage of the Christian celebration of Easter to catch the Parisians with their pants down. So, if the legendary lineages are correct, the leaders of the great heathen army might have been taking a cue from their father. And if they could arrive deep inside Northumbria with their horses, they would probably be able to strike before a third could be effectively raised. Hell, with this sort of attack, even if messengers were dispatched, it's doubtful a large enough force could be raised by the Northumbrians in time. Something else to consider is when the Danes were planning on setting out. They would have been leaving at harvest, or maybe even a bit after harvest. So they very well might have seized some East Anglian food for the road. It would have been a smart move for the Vikingers. And a brutal final assault upon the East Anglians. But, for the great heathen army, timing and speed was everything. And so they found a way to calm or restrain their horses for the trip. And then they loaded onto their longships, past the Wash and the Mercian-controlled kingdom of Lindsay, crossed the Humber, and landed within Northumbria. In all, it was a voyage that would have been over 60 nautical miles. And it was probably significantly longer since they might have wanted to come closer to Efferwich if they could. And most importantly, no one could have predicted this. It was probably late on All Hallows' Eve, or early on All Hallows' Day, also known as All Saints' Day, and Northumbria was waking up to find a massive Vikinger army within their borders. An army that likely outnumbered either of their warring kings' armies by many magnitudes. And... It was mounted. Can you imagine that scene? Ship after ship offloading heavily armed and experienced pirates, and then possibly turning around to pick up the next shipment. And then they all mounted their horses and rode hard to their target. Meanwhile, 
and Ephawich, people set about preparing to celebrate All Saints' Day. Observances were held, feasts were prepared, the peasants were likely excited to have a day off from their tasks. All Saints' Day would have been something that virtually everyone looked forward to. And as they went about their celebrations, they likely had no idea of the massive force that was riding their way. All Saints' Day wasn't a day when war was waged. No one would have seen this coming. No preparations for something like this would have been set in place. And consequently, the city was lost the moment the Vikinger kings landed in Northumbria. The Northumbrians just didn't know it yet. At some point during the celebrations of November 1st, 866, the Danes streamed into Evowich and took the city. All that planning and strategy had paid off, because rather than facing a pitched battle, they appear to have taken the city with hardly any fighting at all. We don't know what happened to the people within the city. We don't know if they managed to flee. We don't know what became of those who stayed behind or were captured. It's possible that nothing gruesome happened to them, and that the lower classes simply traded one lord for another. I mean, the Northmen might have wanted people to work the lands, and so keeping the peasants would have made sense in that situation. But something to keep in mind is that the Northmen were also slavers. A great deal of wealth could be gained by capturing the locals, loading them onto ships, and then selling them at the slave markets of Dublin or elsewhere. And the Vikingers knew it. So, I think this really could have gone either way. But, for the peasantry who remained, I imagine that a lot of these wars boiled down to fights over who you paid your food rent to. I mean, provided that they survived the fighting and the side effects like famine, and of course, provided that they weren't sold off, losing Ephawich might not have changed the lives of the peasants all that much. Ultimately, they were probably still doing the same work, and they were still paying their taxes up the ladder. For a lot of them, I imagine that the only thing that really changed was instead of paying taxes to Unferth, they would be paying taxes to Olaf. But something to consider is that a lot of the people in Ephrowich probably weren't peasants. They were probably part of the wealth class. This was a city, after all. So rather than being peasants who didn't have much skin in the game and were also quite useful for the fields, a good number of these people were probably useless at farming, but quite well trained in riding and fighting. And critically, they were a group who would want their stuff back. So with that in mind, why would anyone keep them around? Well, my guess, and it really is just a guess, is that the peasants probably stayed on the land and served their new overlords. But any Anglian noble who looked like they might cause trouble would probably have been sent to the nearby slave markets of Dublin or just killed outright. But think about what just happened on November 1st, 866. For the first time, the Danes had something that they had never had before. They had a fortified settlement in Britain. Sure, there had been years where they wintered on this temperate island, but it was always in small encampments. Now they had a settlement. And not just any settlement, but one with sturdy Roman walls protecting it. And that meant that they could ride out and strike the surrounding area with little fear of losing their supplies. They had a stronghold. But they also had a hard time with the name. Frankly, 
The name was a bit awkward to say, even for the Anglo-Saxons. It was probably the result of a linguistic drift from the original name, Iboricum. And that actually probably derived from an old Brythonic term which meant the place of the yew trees. But when the Anglo-Saxons heard Iboricum, they understood it to be Ephowich, which appears to have been based around the sound of the word. But it roughly means in their tongue, the town with abundant wild boar. So they probably understood it to mean that. However, Ephowich was really difficult for the Northmen to pronounce. It didn't quite work with their language but they did their best, and they called the city Jorvik. Over time, that name would be shortened to York. But as the Danes were working out how to pronounce the name of their new stronghold, Kings Osbert and Alla were out there, and for all the disorganization and civil strife, they were Northumbrians, the very same people who had devastated the Northmen so thoroughly at Jarrow that they didn't return for a generation. And they each had an army of experienced warriors at their side, ready to carry out any orders. The Danes had won York, but the war for the island had just begun. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. Just go to at British Podcast. And you can find all kinds of other goodies at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>